0: Welcome everybody to the Cone of Shame Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andy Work, Guys, I have got a super interesting interview today. It is me and the one and only Dr. Jen Brant. We are talking about alarmism and the challenges of communicating about mental health. We talk a lot about um, the narrative that medicine is the worst profession for uh, mental health and how there's that's not true. And there's just not, there's not a lot of research to support anything like that. Uh, it doesn't mean that we don't have unique challenges. Obviously we do. It doesn't mean mental health is not important. Obviously it is, but there are some good ways that we should talk about taking care of ourselves. And there are some damaging ways that we talk about mental health. And we hear, we hear these, uh, these narratives a lot. And so really useful, really interesting conversation with my friend, Dr. Jen Brent. Let's get into this episode. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome to the Cone of Shame podcast, Dr. Jen Brandt. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Oh, it's always a pleasure. I, I love getting to talk to you. For those who don't know you, you are a sociologist, a social worker by uh, background training. You're the AVMA's director of well-being, diversity, and inclusion. Uh, you are a speaker and thought leader in our industry. And uh, you are a always an insightful person when I get a chance to talk to you about mental health and wellness and, and how our profession is doing. So uh, anything you'd like to add to that?
1: I think that covers it.
0: Very nice. Well, thank you for being here. I reached out to you um, because I always, you know, obviously mental health and wellness is, is important to me in our profession. And I, I'm trying, I'm on sort of this journey recently to try to figure out what's real and what's not, and also to figure out what do we do about this, and and really, when I talk to you, what I really want to talk about is how do we communicate about mental health and wellness? How do we talk about this to our staff? How do we talk about it to ourselves? What are we doing from a communication standpoint that is good and useful, and what is harmful? Because I, I I see stuff out there that I think that's really not good. I. I reached out to you when I saw there was a a news story in Javma News in uh, early November. It's called "Education, Communication Are Important Strategies to Prevent Suicide Among Veterinarians," and uh, and you were featured prominently in the in the uh, in the piece. And so I thought, you know, I haven't talked to Dr. Brandt in a while. Let's let's get together and touch base about communication. So, all of that to say, as far as just let's start really broad, as far as how we talk about. Mental health and suicide in vet medicine. Um, my worry is that we have a lot of people who they they want to do good. They they want to they want to support their their staff. They want to uh, support their colleagues, but they're either not sure how to do it, and so they say nothing to their staff, uh, and, and I don't think that that's good, or they uh, or they enthusiastically jump into it and and possibly do more harm than good. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'll just leave it at that. They possibly do more harm than good. Do you think there's validity to that concern? Do you do you see that when you see veterinarians talking about mental health yes, and wellness?
1: Yes, and I would say maybe importantly that that's the feedback that I receive from veterinarians, right? That it's either we're not talking about it at all or we're talking about it in a way that has us feeling more alarmed and less certain about what might be helpful. So I will say as a caveat, I very rarely like to think about terms as right or wrong or good or bad. I more think about, is this moving us in the direction that we want? Are we getting the outcomes that we want? Um, Is this a constructive way of having a dialogue? So I will, I like to, I like to give that caveat first because I don't think that there's, what is helpful and not helpful is far more nuanced, right? We can't necessarily put something that this is the absolute right way and not and not right way. So I want to say that first. um the mm-hmm. the summit that you reference in terms of how we talk about suicide, that really came about because of ongoing concerns about how we've been talking about suicide. And many people aren't necessarily aware that there's been a, a good body of research done on, again, what is a constructive way to have this dialogue. And so it's not constructive to misreport information. So, yeah. Um most audiences that I talk to when I ask them, you know, what do you or who do you think has the highest rate of suicide among healthcare professions or on the planet, universally everybody says that med, right? That's what they have read, that's what they've been told. That is not true. But that has become the narrative and then unfortunately because that's become the narrative, it feeds the rest of the narrative. So if that's true, then we need to figure out, quote unquote, what's wrong with vet med. And so it has this rabbit trail in this direction that is not proving helpful. So, you know, for the record, that is not true. Veterinarians don't have the highest rate of suicide. And what we also want to be asking is what are some exceptions? You know, who's thriving and what can we learn about those who are thriving that might be helpful as opposed to focusing on people who say they uh, are not thriving? And then what really came out also from the, um, the summit were, was this body of research that, you know, that we know the, the effective ways to talk about an issue are solution focused, right? Not using alarmist language. So I know one of the examples that somebody from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention said, you know, it might be quote unquote um, accurate if somebody screams fire in a building, and yet we don't have you do that because it raises alarm so much. And then and then we, we overreact to that information in ways that end up causing more harm than good. So the language that we choose, we want to be very factual without being alarmist. Um, when we talk about suicide in media, we need to be very responsible about the way that we're doing it and not... Um, continue painting a narrative that has it only as worst case scenario or, again, information that isn't even factual to begin with and more about what you can do to promote well-being as opposed to things to avoid.
0: How, how do you think that the narrative that vet medicine is the worst for suicide got got established? I mean, that's probably not something that someone just pulled out of the air. And of course, I, I've, I've heard that a lot too. Is theres there something, is there some, I mean, yeah. Where do where do you think that comes from?
1: I would say that's for me. It's a million dollar question. I have we have some sources that did uh, share the information early and often, uh, going back seven or eight years ago. So I think just a proliferation, you know, on social media, you see a fact. You don't necessarily know to question the fact. You hit the share button and all of a sudden that becomes true. And what was interesting in vet med is that even years ago, people would challenge that and say, well, actually that's not what the CDC has said. And then it was fascinating to watch kind of the anger that got directed at the people who were saying, wait a minute, maybe that's not the story. So there were, there were two interesting things happened. The sharing of Um, incorrect information, and then the reaction to the people who were trying to say, just like, could we call a timeout? The reality is though that that information has been widely shared, and so it's really created an impetus for understanding, one, how do we correct the information, which is also, by the way, a science, right? Mm -hmm. We know in terms of studying the political climate, that if somebody has a belief about something and you simply say, well, that's not true and here's the data, that we think that using that rational approach will you'll get them to see the truth of the situation when actually what happens in our brain is we double down on the misinformation and and so it becomes even truer in our in our brain so learning how to even step back from that and figure out what's the best way to help a brain take in information that it didn't realize was true And the science of that is also interesting that those of us who are misinformed or not informed about an issue tend to be the absolutely most confident that our view is correct. Yeah. Whereas the people who know a lot about it are like, wow, there's a lot of uncertainty here, right? We are far less certain about what is and isn't the right thing to do. We know enough to be curious and continue to ask questions.
0: Yes, right? Yeah, Dunning Kruger, right? Where uh, <laughs> thirty minutes of internet research makes you an expert, but then spend a year looking at it and you realize all the things that you don't know and all the nuance, and you know, you fall back. So that that does make a ton of sense. That um, it's easy to get ex- excited about how our profession is doing, and then yeah, it's, I've always wondered that when I when I talk to people like yourself who um who do this day in and day out. Uh, there's a lot of nuance, and there's a, a lot less certainty than uh, than I get from you know from a lot of social media posts and, and factoids that are that are put forward. I've been I've been really interested uh, in the last in the last six eight weeks uh, in, in the stories that we tell ourselves and how they impact us. And so that that's really when I start talking about communication and, and mental health and suicide and vet medicine. I, I've just become a bigger and bigger believer that. Um, again, not invalidating anyone's personal experience, but for the vast majority of us who are living our lives and we're in practice day after day, we do have a lot of control about how we perceive our situation to be, meaning that we can, through our perspective and, and, the, and the way that we look at our work, we can decide a lot about whether we feel Feel like we are having a good life, having a good career, or not having a good life and not having a good career. And so, I, I want to put that sort of forward to you and say, do you do you agree with that? As we talk about mental health at the at the profession level, not not necessarily for an individual person, do you think that we impact the um, the happiness, the 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 satisfaction in our career when we tell ourselves stories about? Uh, you know, we're struggling, we're, you know, we're drowning, we're, um, we're sacrificing versus when we say, you know, this is a hard job and it's a uniquely stressful job, but I am going to set boundaries because that's what's required for me to, you know, to continue to come back and and do the good work that I do.
1: Yeah. I, again, I always say I'm a brain science nerd um, because I love to see what's going on in the brain, right? When we talk about this. And so there's a, no, there's a, uh a large body of brain science that talks about the influence that the stories we tell do matter. Um, And there's this concept of internal versus external locus of control. And an internal locus of control says, I do have some capacity, right? I have choices in how I respond to something. So Internal locus of control could say certainly bad things will happen in my life. And at the end of the day, I have um, responsibility and accountability for the step that I take next. And so an easy example that I use is if somebody yells at me, I certainly can say I am justified in yelling back. Right. But that is a choice. I can Mm -hmm. yell back or I can say, "Hmm, isn't this curious? You know, I wonder what's going on with that person that might be contributing to their level of anger. And so I might be able to choose empathy or compassion. Um, Again, some of the brain science behind that, that our brain really does have what we call a negativity bias. So it's, I'm going to be as as my brain is going to be much more sensitive to the bad things, the things that I label as bad happening around me, rather than the good things. And so an example I'll give to that is, let's say I had a um, performance review from my boss, and my my boss gives me 10 things, you know, that I'm doing really well. But I Mm -hmm. hear the one thing that he says I could work on. Right. And so then my story is I had a lousy review today with my boss. Right. And then I go online Mm -hmm. and I tell people that. And so the important thing to understand is that I am telling a true story when I say something negative happened in that review or true for me. It's just that I'm not telling the whole truth. And so this negativity bias causes us to really narrow down the story. And, and the good news is that there are a number of things that we all have available to us to start challenging that. Like we can even know that the negativity bias is a thing. We can start to be aware of it. We can start to check the stories that we tell. And do I feel better after I tell this story? Am I closer to finding a solution that is effective for me? Am I more consistent with living with my values? Am, am I healthier because of the story I'm telling myself? Or am I not doing that? Um, When we look at people who thrive, one of the things that we can look at are the stories they tell. And so people who tend to thrive and report well-being will say, tend to have stories that are of redemption, of learning, of growth, even at the same time, they acknowledge that that was very painful. So I want to be clear. It's not this Pollyanna view that I need to say everything is great. It's just, it's, it's being able to say that some things are great. Some things are not great. And that ability to tell kind of the whole story helps then influence my decision making and my mindset and a variety of other things in my life.
0: Yeah, I I hear that pushback a lot is, you know, this is a poly, this is Pollyanna thinking, this is toxic positivity or things like that. I I well, the way you described it of, you know, negativity bias, it it really resonates strongly with me. I think when I first started to have real reservations about like the amount of time that I was spending on social media, what I found would happen is that, you know, I would have a fairly regular day at the vet clinic and I would see a dozen happy clients and one unhappy client. And then I would get home and of course, the unhappy client is the one that kind of clings to me a bit. And then I would get on social media and I would see other people Uh, struggling or other people venting or or someone else would just say, can you believe these pet owners? And that it wasn't just that uh, what, you know, what I was reading, it was that plus the fact that I could easily pluck this personal example out of my day and apply it to the voice that I heard seemed to make a very powerful combination in my mind to influence my perspective. And only when I sort of got away from it and I said, you know, how let's really walk through your day did I go wait a second I I think the narrative in my mind is not representative of the the experience that I had I um I've cut way back on social media and I used to be I used to be real I used to be on there all the time I used to do a ton of social media stuff and I had people sort of ask me like well how did you cut back on social media because I I find it it's addictive for me you know it becomes a habit and I I just sort of spend time and scroll and scroll and it was funny and I tried all these different you know blockers and things and time limiting things. The only thing that happened for me that really worked was I had read this article and I started doing it and I started paying attention to how I felt when I was actually spending time on, you know, on these services. And so to your point of, you know, um, of you know, asking yourself, do I feel better? I started asking myself do I feel better now that I'm on here than I did before uh, and when I would get off uh, uh, you know in in like sort of close out close out the app I started asking myself do I do I feel better than I did before I spent 10 minutes on social media and again and again the answer was no and by bringing that answer to my forefront I I sort of was able to self-train and say, why are you doing this behavior when when the net feeling that you get is negative at the end? And honestly, it was never about setting limits or anything. I just consciously didn't enjoy it um and i pulled it back but i think when you don't have those thoughts it's a hundred percent that engagement isn't it it's, it's the it's the resonance you you hear things that you sort of relate to you kind of uh people call it the uh, the ecstasy of outrage you know you, you you feel you get mad and it feels good to be mad sometimes and so i would i would engage with these things but when i asked myself am i happy the the answer was no so let's expand a little bit on um, on sort of toxic positivity and the and the Pollyanna view. When I talk to people, because I wrestle with this as well, I sort of say, you know, the way that we talk about mental health, uh, you know, online especially, but but just out in the world, I think it can be damaging. And the same way, oftentimes, I get pushed back, and people say it's very valuable for me to be able to connect with other people and share this experience and feel supported. And I go. Okay, I I do see that, and uh, and then there is research that that I use when I talk about customer service that talks about the benefits, psychological benefits of venting. And so, if someone has a negative experience, they're more likely to uh, to be to end the disagreement satisfied if they have the uh, option to to vent and to express their feelings. And so I, I'm kind of in a quandary, Jim, what what are your thoughts on on sort of that balance of, uh, you know, assuming the positive, you know, um, changing the way we think versus saying, hey, there's there's real benefits in sharing these experiences.
1: So I guess a couple things come to mind. And again, I'll go back to brain science a bit that our brain uses 20 percent of its of our total energy in a single day. of our energy and our brain is, is, is really wanting us to be successful in life. And so it tends to want us to be, it wants to simplify processes that could be complex and kind of a, 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 just a general way to explain that is it likes to put things in the good box or the bad box, right? Like I mentioned at the beginning, when really life is really far nuanced than that. And so I will often hear, first of all, I want to say toxic positivity is a thing and it Mm -hmm. is not a healthy thing. That is a legitimate concern. What isn't though a a fair argument is to say that either you're being toxic or therefore you have to be um, a downer about everything. So I have people picture a ruler, right? So we can put toxic positivity on one end of the ruler and then just absolute gloom and doom on the other. And then if we think about all those little lines, you know, the millimeter lines on a ruler, can we bring the, the storytelling more into balance, right? So I don't, I don't want toxic positivity either. Like I, that, that totally rubs me the wrong way. So But so does this limited gloom only. So one way to think about that is to understand the concept between that there's venting, and then there's what we call emotional dumping. And a lot of people who, what we call venting is really emotional dumping. So when we are venting, it is very self-reflective, right? There's some I statements, like this is how I'm perceiving it. This is I'm feeling how I'm feeling it versus those people did X, Y, and Z to me. Um, it's solution focused. So we're, we're, we're wanting a way out. We're wanting to find a solution. Um, we're open to feedback when we're venting, right? It isn't just one way. like we really do want somebody to check our perspective and you know, you know, challenge my way of thinking about this. We accept that we have personal responsibility and accountability for our own integrity in that process. And we're aware that how we're presenting that story could actually be helpful or harmful to someone else. So we're not only seeing our perspective um, So that's venting. When we think about emotional dumping, there is no concern about how this is landing. It doesn't matter that we are now sucking the life joy out of someone else because our story is really primary. Uh, We can become very defensive in the story if somebody challenges, you know, and even says, like, is that the whole story? We shut that down. We have no receptivity to that very much a victim or a helpless mindset, very much aimed at blaming. You know, I had a bad day and it's everyone else's fault. I had nothing to do with it. It happened at me, not with me. Very resistant to feedback from other people's perspective. And then we'll tend to cycle. So I like an emotional dumping. I don't know what the proper term is now. I think of them as soap operas. Maybe they're they're daytime serials now. But we used to joke that if you, you know, watched a daytime serial a year ago, didn't see it for a year and tuned back in that you would still have some idea what was going on with the characters because they were just, you know, living pretty much their same lives in many ways. And so emotional dumping, you'll know, like if you are having this same dialogue with somebody, it's five months down the road, it's the same complaint. You've not taken any yeah. action steps. Then it lets you know that that, again, is that really getting you the outcome you want? And is that helpful for anyone else in the process? And generally the answer to that is going to be, no. So there really is this, this way that our brains can get stuck in this cycle and it prevents us from moving forward. And if it only harmed us, that would be bad enough. But unfortunately, we take other people down in that process that there's really a contagion to that. And so I do have concerns when I see people dumping all on social media and then the kind of the piling on and blaming other people. Yeah, I always look for is there somebody in that thread that's gonna say, hey, wait a minute. You know, could we talk yeah. about the exceptions? Is there something that happened positive today? And that is not that is not toxic positivity. That is just expanding the truth of your story.
0: Hey guys, I just want to jump in real fast with a couple of quick updates. The first one is the April Uncharted Veterinary Conference. Registration is open. If you're not familiar with uncharted you are missing out it is a leadership development and business conference that i started back in 2017 with my team it is active learning it is about building relationships networking new ideas working on your business not sitting passively and having people talk to you about just you know, vet medicine in general, but no, it's working on your stuff. So you get the most out of it you possibly can. Uh, it's it's the stuff of legend. These conferences are very very popular. They are very small. We're probably gonna have about a hundred people in, at April, and that's just for some COVID precautions, trying to keep it a bit smaller. Um, but you want to, you're gonna want to grab your spot soon if you're going to be there. I'll put a link in the show notes. Check it out. Uh, learn uh, learn more at the link. I'd love to see you guys in April. The other thing I want to talk about is this week on the Uncharted Veterinary Podcast, which is our sister podcast. It's the one that I do with practice management goddess Stephanie Goss. We are talking about when you don't have enough time in your staff meetings to get everything done. If you feel like your staff meeting happens and it's an hour and you have 47 hours worth of things to do in your staff meeting, we got you covered. Go check out the episode. It is all about making meetings work for you. Uh guys, with that, let's get back into this episode.
1: That is not toxic positivity. That is just expanding the truths of your story.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit cuz that's that's a that's a tricky wicket. Uh <laughs> right there. How how do you how do you point out the you know emotional dumping how, how when someone or when you see negativity or or someone that you care about is just living in this space of this is awful uh you know I can't believe uh, I'm being I'm being mistreated I'm being abused by the clients I'm being uh, unappreciated uh, then that may be true you know, at some point you're hearing these same things again and again and again how do you you know how do you how do you question that? how How do you challenge people on the story that they're telling themselves?
1: So one, I'd say again, it is tricky. so there's there's no absolute blueprint for this. and And some of it will depend on the relationship you have in the context of these conversations. So what I'll give is general advice. But one is to just be aware of how that's affecting you. And so you may be able <laughs> to say that. Like when I listen to this story, I find that I feel worse. Uh, you know, I, I feel not energized to go do things, and I want you to be aware of that, right? So you're not you're not telling the other person what to do. You are simply owning that it has an impact on you, and that may be enough. And so, and you might need to even say, "So I'm going to need to set some limits around that, right? Here's what we yeah. can talk about." So that would be one approach. Another approach, maybe if it's even in a coaching situation, might be to ask somebody, um, you know, "Tell me what you've done to address this situation." Um, How well is that working for you? What might you be willing to do differently? And again, I want to be very clear. We're not shaming the person. No, we're not bad mouthing the person. Right. I mean, people have pain and, and this is the coping strategy that they are bringing to the table to manage that pain. And I'd rather have a coping strategy that's at least maybe keeping them afloat as to one that doesn't. So just asking those questions in a different way. And a lot of times they'll find when I say, and what are you willing to do different is when you can see their eyes just kind of freeze for a minute. Like, Oh, I hadn't yeah. thought about it that way. And then you might find some people do have some ideas. It's just, you know, Oh, you'll think they're silly or I don't think I can do them. And so then you can really empower them. You can support them. You can be an ally in helping them achieve that. Other people might say I'm completely stuck. Right. And so Mm-hmm. That's tricky because you anyone in listening to this will have the experience where somebody might have been stuck and you just rattled off 20 great ideas and they say no to all of them. Right. None of yep. these are going to work. And so I might even again, depending on my relationship with this person in the context, I might even say we've ruled out 20 ideas. So tell me what you do think will work. Um, right. And at least there's a moment of ownership that, I, that I'm committed to being stuck and I don't want it to work. Um, and that's where they are right then. And you can decide for you if that's something you're gonna, you going to continue to engage in, or they might realize from there that there might be some things or approaches that they can take that might be more helpful for them.
0: Yeah, I, I, I like that a lot. You know, the, uh, the coaching standpoint of, you know, what, what are your options? Where, where do you think you'll go from here? I, I think that makes a lot a lot of sense. I I have, you know, I, I'm not a, com, a confrontational person. Like I I don't I don't like having conflict with with people. It's just sort of an, an innate piece piece of my personality. And one of the things I think that has helped me in these types of conversations is I ask myself, a totally, this is Brene Brown. Uh, but what is kind? You know, and, and I end up in these positions, and I'll talk to this person, I'll talk to them again and again, and it's always negative, and it's always bad, and it's always the same conversation, and I end up just feeling crappy afterwards, and and so then the question for me when I say, well, am I going to talk to this person or not, the the question of what is kind, and I go, well, is it kind for me just to avoid this person, and just not to, not to answer the phone when they call, or, you know, is is that kind, because that's kind of where I am, or is it kind for me to say, hey, when we have these conversations, I, you know, I, I don't know what to do with this. And, you know, and, and it's, it, it brings me down because I care about you and I don't know what to do to help you. And I feel like you're stuck in this place. And so this is, this is, these are conversations getting hard for me. And that has enabled me to have those conversations I otherwise never would have had because I always said, well, I don't want to make this person upset or I don't want to let them down or I want them to think I'm a bad friend. I, I go, no, what is, what is the kindest thing I can do for them? And it's, it's to tell them kind of what I see and, and, and how I feel. The other part of that, I th- I think really is when we get into this, what are you going to do about it? I think as you know, we talk a lot about personal boundaries when we talk about mental health and stuff, but I, I'm really on this kick of organizational boundaries and and professional boundaries. Meaning, I think our practices to some degree they need to protect the employees uh, from from sort of emotional abuse and from putting them out to the place where they're going to, you know, get unreasonable demands or they're going to be sort of pushed around emotionally by by pet owners who are trying to do the best thing for their pet. I, I think that that practices have a certain obligation to take care and try to protect the wellness of their staff. And so um, when we say, you know, well, what are you going to do? I, I always kind of push into the practices a bit and say, how are you supporting people who, who need help? And so l- let me, let me ask, ask that to you and sort of say, are there things that practices can kind of do that you see for wellness and employees when they start to struggle or when they get, when they get into a rut?
1: So again, a couple of thoughts come to mind when we look at kind of the brain science of things. So it may be helpful for people to have an understanding that there are kind of two concepts about how we might problem solve um, uh-huh. or face a face an issue. And one is the approach approach stance and the other one is avoidance. So approach would be, for lack of a better word, leaning into the problem. Let's learn more about it. Let's be curious. So, you know, let's brainstorm solutions. And the other one is avoidance. Let's not talk about it. Let's deny it's mm-hmm. a problem. Let's distract ourselves. I want to be, again, very clear that either one of those approaches could potentially be harmful or helpful. So there's not a universal rule. In general, however, approach approach techniques tend to be healthier. Mm-hmm. So we'll go with that. And when, and, and I'm a hundred percent, I'm not sure I'd give a single presentation that doesn't mention boundaries. I might like, don't leave home without them. Right. We need it. Right. Mm-hmm. And absolutely both at an individual and an organizational level, we need to talk, what are the boundaries and then what barriers get in the way. So, When we talk about organizationally i I would love if every team did sit down like what are the standards of behavior that we expect in this practice and not just our clients by the way but but each other like we need to be in there too because we are not always kind to each other how will we hold people accountable for that what kind of training might we need to have the words or feel empowered enough to say you know that's that is really not working for me i do not feel safe in this conversation i'm going to step away because oftentimes what happens, I, I give this example a lot, but let's say a client is mad about their bill. You know, they go to out, yeah. out and so the person who's receiving that payment or having the conversation is very good about holding the boundary. This is what you owe, we reviewed the bill, it's correct, et cetera but the client continues to make a scene. I want to speak to somebody else. The somebody else comes in, does not, they have an avoidance approach, right? Don't want to deal with it. Want to just get the client out of there before they Mm -hmm. escalate further. So we go ahead and waive those charges. So, we've reinforced now this behavior, the behavior is more likely to happen in the practice rather than less. We didn't actually resolve it. And in the process, we betrayed this person at our front desk who was holding the line and was able to do their job. And so it it really is a team discussion. You know, Are we really going to hold the line on these things? And then do we teach people in a respectful way to hold that line? Because the key is consistency. And if one person on the team or in that organization waffles on the boundary, then unfortunately, it actually does impact every single other member of the team. And I think that's when we're taking an avoidance approach, we think we're saving ourselves in that moment without realizing that we've actually caused harm to the entire team in in doing so.
0: Yeah, I um, you know, I I like to talk about when we talk about organizational boundaries. And and I love your point about consistency. The, the, the sort of phrase I've been using a lot recently is if, um, if your strategy ends in someone making a moral decision on the ground, uh, that that's going to ultimately that's failure. You know what I mean? Because we, we we have kind, compassionate people and any, any time that, uh, the decision is going to be made and it's made in front of a tearful pet owner. They're going to choose compassion for the pet owner over the, over the boundaries, over the, sort of the wellness of the team, I, I believe. Because again, it's, it's this small thing. It's just today. It's just this one time. It's just this one person. But ultimately, your boundaries are made up of a series of these conversations. And so I, I just think um, there's a lot of policies out there that are you know based on, well, ask, if this happens, just ask the doctor. And I go, you know what's going to happen when you ask the doctor? she's gonna fold like origami every time. Cause that's what I do. You know, every time I'm going to, I'm going to be the nice person and I'm going to help the person. But me helping this one person one time and seven other doctors helping one person one time and it happens every week, means that my staff stays late every single night. Um, and, and like those are the way that they, they, these things sort of pile up. And so when we talk about the brain science, one of the the big biases I've been thinking a lot about recently is present bias which means we have a we have a natural tendency to do to take a smaller gain right now over a larger gain later on especially if that larger gain is not guaranteed. And so doing the thing right now and just getting it done is the easier shorter quicker thing. I solved the problem, I feel good about it versus hey Let's stop and figure out a system for handling this so that in the future we don't have these little problems we have to fix. And I think a lot of us just we just put out fires. And so we're always putting out the fires and we never actually stop and step back and say, let's get a system for dealing with this recurrent problem.
1: Yeah, I would say beautifully said when we talk about systems, we want to ask, what are the pain points? Right. And a lot of pain points in, in organizations, certainly including veterinary medicine, are pretty predictable. Like we know where there are pain points. Um, yeah. And I also go when when you use the language, you know, I want to be nice to the client. Part of that then is the story we tell ourselves, that we tell ourselves we're being nice to the, compli- the client. We don't then tell ourselves, and in doing so, I was not nice to my staff. Right. And so again, when we're telling the full story the full mm-hmm. story is somebody did not perceive that as nice and then so stepping away at the end of the day what are our desired goals for this practice you know to maintain positive healthy relationships with our with our clients so that we can maximize good health outcomes and part of that is making sure that our staff feel protected and cared for and seen and heard and knowing that if somebody is coming and bulldozing them, that there is a process in place will, that will stop that and protect them and help prevent that from happening again. So that's all part of the story that we tell ourselves, that when we say yes to something, like yes, in this case to the client, it does come with a no somewhere mm-hmm. else. And that's been the piece that we just haven't, we've not been as comfortable looking at.
0: Yeah. the, the When you say tell the full story, um, it's really about balance, isn't it? It's it's about it's about balancing the good this pet owner is asking for against the the impact that that this course of action is going to have on my staff, on myself, on my family who's waiting for me to come home at the end of the day. And I always tell people, I'm not telling you not to do the thing, you know, I'm not telling you not to help the person, but I am telling you to look at it holistically across all the affected parties as you make your decision about what to do. And the downside is it makes the it makes things a lot more shades of gray. Than just help this person or not, yes or no. Um, but but I really do think that that's a healthier long-term view.
1: Yeah, and again, our brain doesn't wanna deal with the like. It's a natural instinct to wanna simplify it. And it's natural to find ourselves getting very defensive when somebody is saying, I'm gonna ask you to operate in the gray here. So one exercise that I encourage staff to do is let's deconstruct one of those. So we'll, we'll stick with the um, financial example, we waived the bill, right? So I have people go write a pros and cons list. The pro of waiving the bill is what? The con of waiving the bill is what? The pro of not waiving the bill is what? The con of not waiving the bill is what? And so one, it gets it out of the emotionality in our head and that, in, and, you know, that intensity that happens. It allows us to look at it a little more concretely. Um, and then another, another concept that I like that helps us kind of check our balance is called the rule of six. Which has mm-hmm. roots in indigenous practice, but it basically says, you know, if you think you know an answer, if you have an, a, a hypothesis about something, allow yourself to have it. Have it like that's hypothesis one. But the challenge is now come up with five more, and it's just this exercise to teach your brain to start looking beyond that easier, fixed solution that we had. Again, realize that there's more nuance out there, so that we can become more skilled at doing that again at as an at an individual level but also as teams.
0: Yeah, that's, yeah, I had not heard the rule of six. I I really like that a lot. It feels a lot like um, in in sort of the uncharted community, which is a leadership community that I run, I I sort of asked in there recently, because I've had this idea, you know, I always say assume good intent. And I just think that's so important in dealing with other people is just assume good intent. And what what I was thinking about a lot recently is, man, it's really easy to assume good intent. If you're on the ball, it's easy to assume good intent the first time you have conflict with someone. But like the fifth or sixth or 10th or 30th time that you have conflict with this person, uh, it's very hard to assume good intent. And the reality is if you and I just have radically different communication styles or radically different value systems, we're probably going to have conflicts over a lot of different things, especially if we work together and we spend time together. At no point does that make you a bad person or does it make or make me make you, um, you know, malevolent. Um, it's just you and I are going to continue to kind of run into each other because we work very differently. And so my 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 question to the group was, how do you continually assume good intent? And um, one of the answers that came back that that sort of seemed similar to the to the rule of six, you know, uh, someone sort of said, what is the most uh, what is the most likely motive of the person? And that way they say, I'm not I'm not trying to to assume good intent. It's easier for me to whatever to say, what is the most rational, logical motive this person probably has? And it's their way of kind of generating these alternate problems other than this person is undermining me. This person doesn't respect me or things like that. And so I just, um, I really like that idea of trying to generate alternate hypotheses about, especially about people's motives. So that, that man, that's so helpful. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Brandt. I really appreciate your time. I always enjoy our conversations. Where can people learn more? Are there resources that you think people should definitely have access to?
1: Uh, yeah, a couple things. Uh, in terms of AVMA, they can go to avma.org/ wellbeing that has a variety of resource. Um, also our Axon platform that has a number of seminars that they can access and then in terms of this concept of checking our story i'm a huge fan of dr Jaron jones you can go to his website at www.selfnarrate.com and for the record i don't i get no kickbacks i have no relationship to dr jones other than i just think he does phenomenal work and he has a book out there called break your invisible chains that chains that walks you through kind of your storytelling and allows you to see your story in a slightly different way. And then he also has a self-narrate podcast. So I would highly recommend any of those resources.
0: Outstanding. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And that is our episode. Guys, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. As always, the best, kindest, nicest thing you can possibly do for me, if you like the episode, is to leave an honest review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast episodes. Uh, It's how people find the show. It gives me some uh, guidance about what people like uh it just and it keeps me encouraged to keep doing the episode so uh, i really appreciate it guys take care of yourselves be well i'll talk to you soon